0: This is a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast.
1: Don't miss an episode. Subscribe today. The Big Interview. Intriguing lives, remarkable careers and gripping stories. I'm Sonal Rupani alongside Chris McCarty and Robbie Greenfield.
2: Michael Francis is a, a very rare, rare thing. And he is a mafia man that has a life in the public eye. Mm. And that, that in itself is almost unheard of. Chris and I kept Michael on the line for over an hour. As, it was uh, to an hour and a half, wasn't it? It was quite, a, quite some time, and, and he was kind enough to really delve into his life, uh, not just his life as a Mafia man, but his life after getting out of the Mafia. He was a member of the Colombo crime family, and as we get into this interview, we're going to divulge more details about how he got into it and... You know, we we watch a lot of in in pop culture. It's uh, you know you can't get away from it, whether Mm -hmm. it be films or TV series, or it's it's a very um, it's very in vogue at the moment. But then you've had classic shows like The Sopranos, classic movies like Goodfellas, The Godfather. You know, Donnie Brasco, all those kind of films where they paint a picture of what it's like. And Michael knew most of these guys in real life who are depicted. He knew Donnie Brasco, Joseph Pistone. He knew this guy. He knew John Gotti. He knew Sammy the Bull Gravano. All these real-life mobsters, he knew them. And we're going to find out what it's like to be a made man, to have a sit-down, to sanction a hit, all those sort of things that you see in pop culture. How, how true, how realistic is a Martin Scorsese film?
0: He's engaging, is. Uh, Michael Franzese, he's done a number of sit-downs I know he did a recent one with Mike Tyson you love your, your kind of mob movies as Robbie's already alluded to even if you don't and you just want to get an insight into what life is really like in the mob Are you a fan of the genre Chris? Massive fan of the genre, yeah from a young age not quite sure my mum should have really been allowing me to watch The Goodfellas of This World and Scarface at a young age but I did and I always had a fascination with it because it, it's a life that, the likes of which For me, growing up in rural Scotland, it's a million miles away from that.
2: What do you think makes us so fascinated in these type of films or this culture?
0: I think because of the movies. I think being brought up with them. I think Robert De Niro, your hero, Joe Pesci. Actors that have done such an incredible job and directors and writers of depicting it. I think there's a fascination because that genre... There ain't many bad films in that genre, truth be told. The Departed, Scarface, Godfathers 1, 2 and 3. You know, I think uh, uh, Casino's another great example... They're good movies.
1: I think there's also something intriguing about the order of it, you know, the, the order of these societies yes. where you kind of work your way up and there's such a strong power structure that you cannot oppose a certain individual. And if you do from a different family and what, you know, the repercussions are, It's so structured in a way. And they existed.
0: <laughs> they existed and flourished. I mean, you've said it there. And still do. And still do. The Colombo crime family, one of the five major New York crime families. I mean, we talk about that as if it is in a movie, these existed and still do, these five families of New York. The fact that they're in the open and that we're discussing them in the the manner that we are, and and Michael, listen, there's no holds barred with Michael. He is very candid about his life of crime, and his crime. I don't want to glorify it too much, and you know, he's a reformed character, and we'll get to that, but it's just to peek behind the curtain of this life.
2: You know, you date back, you look at any of these films or any of these TV shows, Sopranos, Godfather the New York crime families underpin so much of what we we watch and what mm. we read about and what we hear. And, uh, and and Michael lived that life. And he didn't initially plan to. He initially, well, he um, was enrolled as a pre-med at uh, the Hofstra University. But it was actually his father who was the underboss of the Colombo crime family, John Francis, who was charged and actually sentenced to 50 years in prison for bank robbery back in 1967. So, Michael decided that against perhaps his, his impulses, against his, his kind of his moral compass, if you like, um, he decided that he would join his father's family business. And I guess he was quite young at the time. He was probably quite, uh, found the, the, the nature of the life quite alluring. And he signed up, essentially. He did. And with a, and with a dad as high up as his was, It didn't take long before he became a very familiar face. He he was a little bit
0: reluctant, but he eventually helped implement a scheme to defraud the federal government out of gasoline taxes in the early 1980s. Now, by the age of 35, in 1986, Fortune magazine actually listed him as number 18 on its list of the 50 most wealthy and powerful mafia bosses. Franzese actually had claimed that at the height of his career, listen to this, he was making...
2: Up to eight million U.S. dollars a week. The first part is really going to going to focus. We always see the rise and fall. That's the kind of that, that's the trajectory of all of these stories. Whether you watch, mm. you know, Godfather or, or whatever film it is, there's always a certain trajectory that they follow. And. There was a very sharp rise for Michael. He started working in the Colombo crime family. His dad was obviously behind bars but was holding a very influential position within that family. And we wanted to start by getting him to unpick some of the myths, some of the legends. And and we've, we've taken the liberty to use quite a lot of film clips that you will be familiar with because they crop up in popular culture so often. Uh, for example, and let me tell you this one, was uh, a scene, a, good, a great scene in fact, uh, out of The Sopranos, where Tony Soprano is welcoming his nephew Christopher into the family.
0: All right, you know why we're here. So if you have any doubts or reservations, now is the time to say so. No one will think any less of you, because once you enter this family, there's no getting out. This family comes before everything else. Everything.
2: For a mafioso it's it's like getting confirmed yeah. it's sort of uh, it, it really is it means that you are bound by blood to the family and there is no there is no getting out uh, unless you're killed or unless you spend your life behind bars that's it you make a lifetime commitment so we asked michael uh, after spending some years working on the periphery he was welcomed into the family he was he was made we asked him to explain what that meant
3: the night i got made it was october 31st 1975 I mean, I was on a high that night. I mean, this is what I had worked for. It was uh, very special and important to me. It was kind of a blood oak that I took that would bring me even closer to my father, who somebody I idolized uh, throughout my life. So it was, uh, you know, I really wanted to be the best possible mob guy I could be. So for me, it was was, uh, very, very special, very important. It's a big step in your life. I mean, you know, it's uh, obviously a life-changing experience. It certainly was for me.
2: I wanted to be the best mob guy yeah. that I could it's be. It's like
1: hearing that makes you think of how much just any of us thinking about our careers, mm. how it's the kind of same motivations, in yeah. a sense, that drive you. If
2: you're going to be a mob guy, be the best you yeah. can be. Uh, but we wanted to know what the ceremony itself, because, of course, it's a, it's a pivotal moment in the, the life of anyone who who is associated with the mafia. It's a huge moment symbolically. What was the ceremony like? And Michael paints a beautiful picture here that takes you right back to that night in 1975.
3: It's a very solemn ceremony. It has to be done in secret. So, you know, it's, it's well planned out to make sure that, you know, there's no government agents around, nobody's following anybody. So this is a well thought out uh, ceremony. And for me, it was very late at night. It was midnight, actually. It was held at a, uh, a friend's catering hall in Brooklyn. And uh, there were six of us that got made that night, and we walked into a room individually where the boss was seated at the head of, like, a horseshoe configuration. The underboss and the consigliere were to his left and right, and all of our cop regimes or captains were alongside of them. We had about uh, 15 in our family at that point. And so they let us into the room individually. This is an individual oath. And I walked through that, uh, you know, horseshoe, and I, I came in front of the boss, And, um, again, very solemn, dimly lit room. They wanted you to understand the seriousness of what you were getting involved in. And uh, I stood in front of the boss, held out my hand. He took a knife, cut my finger uh, on my thumb. Some blood dropped on the floor. The a brought oath. I cupped my hands. He took a picture of a saint. It was a Catholic altar card. Put it in my hands and lit it aflame. It didn't hurt. It burned quickly. It was merely symbolic. And he said, tonight, Michael Francis, you are born again into a new life into La Cosa Nostra and that's the uh, you know that's the american version of the mafia in italy and he said if you violate this oath violate your brothers you will die and burn in hell like the saint is burning in your hands he said do you accept and i said yes i do and that's the oath it's it's very simple even though it's solemn and and you know very well thought out and uh, that's how it started for me and the other five guys went in they all took the oath behind me so when you come into the life, you come in as a soldier. Uh, that's the official ranking uh, when you get made. And then you can go up from there or you, you stay as a soldier all your life. It depends on, you know, you individually. <clears throat> but uh, it meant everything to me that night. It was, I mean, I had a very idealistic view of that life. So it was a very important and special night in, in my life.
2: And when you are a young, impressionable guy and you are surrounded by Individuals who are legends in in their, in in their, their chosen right. field, which yeah. is which is the Cosa Nostra, um, it would be it would be something that I'm, I'm sure would have a very profound effect on anyone.
0: Absolutely, and he did a wonderful job there in actually taking you there. Uh, it may have just been me, but listening to this for the second time, of of course after doing the interview uh, interview with you, Rob, he really does transport you there. And this idea you're stood in front of men that you are dedicating your life to. Essentially, you are, your job now is to make money for the bosses. Your job is to go out there into the streets and, and put your life, not so much in their hands per se, but certainly work for them. You are
2: now a made man. You're a soldier, as he put it. So how do you climb the ranks? He said there some people stay a soldier for the rest of their mafia or, or lives in the mafia. Michael didn't. He did rise through the ranks. How do you go about doing that?
3: There's really two ways to, to rise to the top. Number 1 and this is for everybody across the board you got to obey the rules. I mean you you told certain things and you got to obey the rules and if you violate the rules, you know, you could pay for it the serious consequences sometimes you pay for it with your life. So you got to be a guy that follows the rules number 1. And then there's one of two ways to rise to the top. You're either a guy that does a lot of work and what I mean by work, you know, you do the the heavy work for the family. And that sometimes means taking somebody's life, you know, as, as a result of an order that you have. And if you're very proficient in that, well, that can help you rise in the ranks. The other way is to be a good earner. I mean, you bring money into the family, you support the family, you, you get in good graces with the boss and the hierarchy. Well, then you rise in the ranks. So there's one of, like I said, one of two ways that you get to the top for me. You know, I mean, I, I had to do what I had to do. Everybody does. You get an order, you have to obey it. For me, it was more uh, making money. And I was fortunate. I knew how to use that life to benefit me in business. I went on to make a very significant amount of money. And as a result, you know, I was able to rise through the ranks.
2: Michael, very sort of subtly pointing out there that he was not one of the former kind of hitmen per se. He was he was a money earner. And there's, there's, there's two different types of... I suppose of of ways that he just illustrated that you can rise up through the top. Al has been in touch to say he decided he would devote his life to hurting others. Be careful who we are glorifying. We're just, Mm. I think it's it's not so much glorifying. I think it's it's a fascinating insight into a life that does exist. Yeah, and and he is, you know, he's he's telling the story of of a real life experience and a life that he has now left behind. One thing we wanted to talk to him about a recurring character that always crops up. He's usually portrayed by Joe <laughs> Pesci in films like Casino and Goodfellas. It's the hot-headed psychopath. Yes. And we wanted to know if, if this is a movie construct or did those guys really exist? So take a listen to this classic scene from Goodfellas, which I've taken the liberty of putting in at the beginning here, and then Michael will answer that question.
0: Funny how? I mean, what's funny about
2: it? <laughs> yeah, Tommy, no,
0: you got it all wrong. Ain't. Oh, Anthony. He's a big boy. He knows what he said. What'd you say? Right. Funny how? what just you know you're, you're funny <laughs> you mean so, well, let me understand this because i you know maybe it's me i'm a little but i'm funny how i mean funny like i'm a clown i amuse you i make you laugh i'm here to amuse you what do you mean funny funny how how am i funny
3: you know the joe pesci character is a real character in other words there were guys like him that i knew but they never last the hotheads, the guys that run off the mouth the guys that that act first think later they don't last because people don't want to deal with them and eventually they put themselves in a situation where they can't get out of it and they get killed i mean that's what happens what happen to pesci if you saw his character he was a hothead he was always throwing his chest out well people get tired of that it doesn't work and guys like that normally make a mistake and they pay for it with serious consequences sometimes with their lives But, you know, you come across guys like that, and I get asked this all the time, you know, how did you deal with a guy like Gotti that was such a hothead? Well, you got to understand, we're all equal in that life. Everybody is capable of doing what they have to do. You have to be, or you don't become a member of that life. So the fact that one guy likes to boast and likes to shoot from the mouth and likes to claim he's uh, tougher than you, it doesn't work in that life because you're going to pay for it at some point in time because we all – have to respect each other equally. My father always taught me, think first, and before you speak, make sure you know what you're talking about. Like, make, be a good listener, because in that life, you've got to pay attention to what people are saying. You know, when I came across a guy like that, I just let him ramble and let him talk and let him do what he's got to do. But at the end of the day, we had to respect each other. And like I said, I want to make that point. Guys like that, they just don't last in that life. Mm. They really don't. You, you, they have a short lifespan.
2: And we heard Michael reference John Gotti there. Mm. And Gotti was the the boss of the Gambino crime family at the time. And that was a position he made his own by murdering the incumbent boss, Paul Castellano, uh, because Gotti himself feared that his life was under threat. Now, he was known as the Dapper Don... And ultimately, he became known as the Teflon Don because he was acquitted in three separate trials. But Michael Francis had regular business dealings with both John Gotti and his his, uh, lieutenant, Sammy Gravano. And uh, it included a famous dispute they had over a flea market. Take a listen to this. Speaking of Gotti, I I need to clarify something here because I'd read that in a dispute over a flea market, he said to you, you don't buy me out, I buy you out, which I think is the line that Mo Green used to Al Pacino's character in The Godfather.
3: Casino, a hotel. Corleone family wants to buy you out. The Corleone family wants to buy me out. No,
2: I buy you out. You don't buy me out.
3: Is that really what happened? That was a, those were his exact words when we had this dispute over the market. And it's something I knew he would say because, let me make this clear, I like John. Socially, John was was a good guy. We had you know fun together whenever we would meet at a club or something. I'm friendly with his family right now. They, they were good people as far as I was concerned. But in business, John was a nightmare. <laughs> he didn't really understand it. He wasn't a business guy, and he had an ego where he had to win every argument. It's just that's just who he was. So if you had an argument with him, you had to you had to outsmart him rather than try to let him. Uh, think that he was beaten because he would never go down that way. So my plan when we had this dispute over the market was to say, I'm buying you out because I knew he would never accept that. But ultimately, really what I wanted, I wanted him to buy me out. And that's how it worked out because when when I challenged him, uh, he, he rose up to the challenge and he ended up buying me out of the market and the market collapsed like three months later. So I knew that would be the outcome.
2: Just every business deal, every negotiation you're entering into, You are walking a tightrope.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It is also, I think, remarkable to hear him talk about him being a good guy. What world do you exist in that you can talk about a murderer and a known murderer being a good guy? Mm. Kind of what I was saying, there is something that glorifies or almost protects this world. When you think of or when you see murders in a mafia movie, you don't think of them as the same person as you see in a serial killer movie.
2: Yeah. And perhaps because they all buy into it. But yeah. Perhaps because they understand the rules before they get involved in it. Obviously, there's a lot of gray areas as well. But Michael's profile was rising in the, in the crime organization, continued to grow, and as it did so, his position as a result became more vulnerable. You just mentioned that in, in the mafia life, getting whacked, as they call it, is one of the occupational hazards. And one night, Michael thought his number was up.
3: I created a scheme to defraud our government here out of tax on every gallon of gasoline. I ran that operation for eight years, and I had Russian guys as my partner, the Russian mob guys in Brighton Beach, Brooklyn. And it was uh, I was turning over a lot of money to the family, but there was talk on the street that I was making billions. And, and you know, it's a double-edged sword in that life. When you're making that kind of money and you've got a big crew like I had and and, you know, I had the Russians on my side, you know, my boss was getting a little bit nervous about it because my father – you know, it was a powerful guy also. And they're always worried about somebody trying to take over their position in the family. So I think uh, for me, it was more of a put me in my place deal. And um, one night, uh, you know, I'll make it brief because it's a long story. <laughs> but anyhow, I got that call uh, to go and see the boss. And my best friend drove me into Brooklyn. And it was late at night. And um, we parked the car. And he was he was driving, and I had somebody in the back seat that I only met once or twice. I didn't really know him, and we didn't have conversation going into that. Uh, you know, to, we had to meet in the house because the boss was on parole, and we didn't want him to get violated in case the law enforcement was tailing us. So we parked the car, and it was about a thirty yard walk from the car to that house. We had to go into a basement apartment, and when I got out of the car, uh, my friend Jimmy. He walked behind me, and then I'm assuming the other guy walked behind him. So this is a bad setup because they're walking me into a room, something that I was familiar with. And I said, man, these guys, I'm in trouble here. I said, I'm going to get killed here. These guys are serious. So I'm walking down that path, and guys, I'll be honest with you. When I talk about it, it was a day in August. It was a summer day. I can sense the smell of the flowers in the air. I can see the crickets. I I heard everything. It becomes very visual to me. And I'm walking down that path, and I'm saying, they're going to open that door, and I'm going to get shot in the head. This is it. It's over. And, you know, people have said to me, Michael, how come you didn't cut and run? And it wasn't anything heroic that I didn't run. It was more robotic. I said, well, if this is it, this is it, because I was such a product of the life at that point. So, you know, we we walk into that room, that door opens, and I don't know how my knees didn't cave in, I didn't collapse, but I didn't, and uh, obviously I'm here, and they just grilled me really hard about how much money I was making, you gotta understand, I was turning over $2 million a week at that point, but the word on the street was that I was making billions. And, and so they were just trying to put me in my place. That's what happens in that life. The boss wanted me to make sure he that I knew that he was still the boss. He was in control of the family. So they put that scare in me that night. And, uh, you know, we sat down and we started talking. And, and honestly, I started getting mad. I said, you know, you guys are questioning me. I'm giving you more money than you ever saw in your life. And now you're questioning me. I started getting mad. But then I caught myself because I said, look, I'm going to walk out of here. I don't want to get the boss mad at me because you don't ever disrespect the boss. You you never get away with that.
0: You don't want to tempt fate, that's for sure. We spoke about it earlier, Rob, the paranoia
2: that that then brings, Mm. that you never know
0: when your time is up.
2: Not so much the paranoia as well from within your organisation, but also from the authorities who are in active pursuit of you as well. It just must become overbearing, and as we see in very famous films, Goodfellas, the lead character, he becomes convinced, listen to this, that he's being followed everywhere he goes. See, there, Mike, see that helicopter?
0: See right yeah. there? Yeah, right in front yeah, of us there. Yeah, yeah. I think it's been following me all morning. It's, I'm telling
3: you. What's
0: going on. It's the third time I've seen it. I went to the hospital, I started out to get you, I had to stop somewhere, make some couple what stops. I've seen it every time, It's been all over town, and I the think I've seen it all day. Is that the case? Was paranoia something that you dealt with on a daily basis?
3: No, I'm going to be honest with you, it wasn't. I I don't want to call it paranoia because that's a very extreme, dramatic word. But let's put it this way. I was always on my guard with anybody and everybody that I spoke to. And, you know, that night, I mean, I was aware of it before that because, you know, I was a good student of the life because my father educated me quite a bit. And I'm, a, I'm a, you know, normally a pretty quick study anyhow when I'm paying attention. So, but that night made me more acutely aware of, of, you know, how things can go down in that life. So I was, I was on my guard. I don't want to say paranoia because I wasn't doing anything wrong. You know, I've, I've lived by the rules. So, uh, but I was very wary at that point uh, of everybody and anybody. I got to tell you, my best friend walked me in that room. If I was going to get killed... He was obeying the order to have me killed. And I was one of my best friends. And you know what happened? You, you want to hear this, guys? About two years later, that guy, his name was Jimmy, was walked into a room, and he never walked out. They killed him. That's sobering, to wow. say the least.
0: That It is. That code of conduct means, and again, we go back to the movies. That's our reference point. A best friend can walk you into a room
2: and has to
0: go along with the orders that well, come down from above.
2: As we'll, as we'll hear later, Michael's own dad was involved in in the sanctioning of a move on him but he, he keeps referring back to the rules and it's so important I suppose when you are involved in that life to remember and live by those rules. They become the all-governing kind of code by which you live. And uh, we, We've referenced quite a few times the, the movie Goodfellas but there's that scene where Joe Pesci's maniac character kills a guy who's a, 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 who outranks him. And that was ultimately what led to his comeuppance. And we sort of asked Michael to sort of walk us through the parameters of or the gray area, if you like, about when those rules apply and when they don't.
3: Murder was taken very seriously in that life, especially murder of another made guy. It wasn't random. You couldn't kill anybody without the boss sanctioning it. And if you did you were in trouble yourself. So there was always discussion over it. You always had to pass it by the boss. He was the ultimate guy that would give the, the word. Um, and, and I want you to know that. It was taken very seriously. We weren't random killers. But the, the one thing that that movie showed is, in that movie, in Goodfellas, Joe Pesci was not a made guy, and he killed a made guy. You can never, ever, ever get away with that, <clears throat> no matter who you are. You cannot kill a made guy without, um, without permission from the boss. <clears throat> Even another made guy can't kill a made guy without permission from the boss. So, um, you know, it took a while. If I remember the movie, it took a while before they realized that it was Joe Pesci that killed Billy Batts, But as soon as they found out, he was a dead man because that's never tolerated. You have to understand when you come into that life, you're told straight out that <clears throat> everybody that was made was equal. I mean, even a soldier is equal to the boss in that respect because you all took that oath. Of course, the boss has more ranking because he's the boss. but uh, And a captain has more ranking than a soldier because he's a captain. But you're all pretty well equal, if you understand what I mean. So you, you, you have to play by the rules no matter who you are.
2: I want to move on to about Michael's business dealings and the increasing pressure that he came under from the authorities. Now, in tomorrow's interview with him, we'll find out how that unfolded and how that eventually led to his arrest and his imprisonment. But during the 70s and 80s, he began to enter the world of legitimate business as a smokescreen. And we asked him if he encountered as much corruption there as he did in his own line of work.
3: Oh, there's no doubt. You know, there's some myth out there that mob guys, that we would sit in our social clubs and we would plan on attacking the next business to kind of defraud. And that's not true. What happened most of the time was somebody that was involved in their own business or they worked for a big company, they would, they would want to defraud their company and they'd come to us for help. I mean, that's how I got involved in the gas business. It was a guy in the gas business that, that said, you know, I, I want to steal government tax money and he needed a way to figure out and how to do it and he needed protection and he needed money. And that's how he came to me. And a lot of times that happened. I mean, with major companies, people would come to me with a scheme to defraud their own company, and I would get involved with them if I thought it was something worthwhile. So it happened a lot. There's a lot of corruption out there, you know, in the stock market, on Wall Street. I can't tell you how many games we played with with people that were working for major companies, and even in the government. I mean, I had government people working for me to get me licenses to steal money from the government. So... I see a lot of corruption out there. Uh, I tell you what, I think it's worse now than it ever was. You know, from an outsider looking in, and I'm not saying there are not a lot of good people out there. Of course, there are, but there are a lot of people out there that uh, that want to play games.
2: It's like a directory for guys who want to do something illegal. It's yeah, like it's playing games. Play like that, right? games. Playing games. Yeah. I reference that just listening to that there. It's a, it's an odd turn of phrase to describe what it is in essence. You know, illegal. We wanted to know what it was like when the FBI knocked on his door and the heat, as they say, was turned up.
3: I became a major target of law enforcement early on. I mean, my first indictments came when I was 20, 21 years old. And my father was a highly publicized figure. So that that immediately came on to me when I started getting, you know, getting ready to become a member of that life. So I have, I don't know, 17 or 18 arrests. I was indicted actually seven times. I have two federal racketeering cases. So I became, uh, you know, a target from right away. So it wasn't that, you know, that one knock. I started getting the knocks early on. And, of course, I witnessed my father. My father was arrested and went to trial three times. So I sat uh, in, in those trials. So I was no stranger to any of this. So it wasn't one particular moment. For me, it was just they just kept adding on, adding on. And every time I beat them, they'd come back at me, the feds. But, you know, there was a point in time in the mid 80s, Giuliani indicted me. You know, he was the U.S. attorney in New York. He indicted me on a big racketeering case. And I finished a hundred year prison sentence. I was acquitted in that case. And some of my co-defendants were convicted. I was the lead defendant. And uh, the guys are convicted. They got 30 years. So if I would have lost that case, he would have given me at least 50. I would have been done. My life would have been over. So I knew in the mid 80s that this life was in trouble because the government created these new laws. They created the racketeering law. They created the Bail Reform Act, the Sentencing Reform Act, and they were just killing mob guys. I mean, literally putting them away for 100, 150, 200 years. So I knew at that point, if I would have went down again, that I would have gone away for life if they would have convicted me. So I did get uh, uh, indicted on this whole gasoline racketeering case. And because I saw what was going on, I negotiated a plea. And that was part of my exit strategy to walk away from the life because I knew the life was in trouble. I, I knew it at that point. So many guys were becoming informants because they didn't want to do that amount of time. And I said, man, we're in trouble here. I was one of the younger guys. Mm. So, I mean, if I got convicted, they were going to give me 100 years without a doubt.
2: He talks about Mayor Giuliani there, yes. Rudy Giuliani, last mm. seen bellowing at Piers Morgan, I think, just a few days it ago. He
0: was, yeah. He's, he's no longer a close confidant of Mr. President
2: uh, Donald mm, Trump. Is no, he? I don't think he is, but I think he, he still said. defends him. Does well, he? He certainly was in this in, this particular interview. But, uh, yeah, it sounds like from that, the reasons that Michael certainly looked to quit the mafia was was because he anticipated trouble brewing further down the line, as opposed to any kind of moral U-turn that he took. So we asked him to clarify what drove him to seek a way out.
3: Well, I'm going to be honest, guys. I, I wish I could say it was a moral one and that overnight, you know, I I, I got a conscience, but it wasn't. I saw the life was, was in trouble, like I said before, and I met a young girl who uh, I wanted to spend the rest of my life with. And I knew if I stayed in that life, it was only a matter of time before they put me away forever. So it was because of meeting her and realizing that the life was in trouble, that I started to plan an exit strategy. And uh, that began with me taking a plea uh, on this whole gasoline racketeering case. I took a plea. I got a 10-year sentence. I had a $15 million restitution. I had $5 million in forfeitures. At that time, I had my own jet plane. I had a helicopter. I gave everything up at that point to try to make peace with the government and get out of the life. So, it became a moral issue for me later on, but initially it was just survival. I mean, I knew that I was in trouble if I stayed around.
1: It's funny because that's got to have happened to so many different mobsters over time, and yet they would have felt trapped, like they couldn't get out even if they'd wanted to. Something in Michael made him think that, yeah, I can do this if I make right with the government, but what about making right with
2: exactly
0: the
1: crime families that he's into business with?
2: And that's why the vast majority of people who get, they get pinned down by the people that this happens to, they end up entering the witness protection programme because they cut a deal with the authorities who want to basically go further up the food chain to try and target the big, the big bosses and help compile enough information to bring them down. Michael did not go for the witness protection option. He, uh, so therefore we asked him what measures he took to ensure that he could leave the mafia and live to tell the tale. We also wanted to know whether what he was doing had a precedent.
3: Honestly, I don't know of anybody else that's been able to, that reached the level I reached. Remember, I was a cop Regime, which was a pretty high level in that life. And I was a very high-profile guy. I don't know of anybody else, I can't name anybody, that walked away from that life publicly, didn't enter a witness protection program, and lived, you know, it's been 25 years for me. So I've been very fortunate in that regard. I, I could not enter a witness protection program because I, I wasn't about to snitch on my former associates I wasn't mad at anybody I just wanted out of the life I didn't want to hurt anybody and the government they put a lot of pressure on me to cooperate and I told the government I said look I'll talk about my former life but I'm not naming people I'm not putting people in jail I said it's not what I'm about and I'm not gonna do it and so yeah I mean I I talked to the government about you know certain characteristics of that life but I never put anybody in trouble and nobody ever went to prison because of me because I just couldn't live that way, guys. I wouldn't be able to do it. I wouldn't embarrass my father that way. Uh, I just couldn't do it. So I decided to take a chance. Now, honestly, I had a plan. I moved out to California. I knew I couldn't make it in New York, walk away from that life. There's too many guys, and they would have caught up with me, and I would have been dead. So I moved 3,000 miles away. I, I changed my whole lifestyle. I knew that nobody was going to be able to walk me into a room. You know, I I didn't walk my dog every morning at 7 o'clock. I didn't go to the same restaurant. I stayed out of nightclubs because I know that, you know, I I know the patterns and I know the methods that guys use to trap somebody. So I stayed away from all of that because I I knew what the life would bring. So, you know, and fortunately, over a period of time, I just outlasted everybody because everybody I know is either dead or in prison for the rest of their lives. And I mean everybody, guys. There's nobody... There's nobody that I was around in my former life that has survived and is on the street to talk about it. No one.
2: It's not, it's not often that you leave your job and you have to move states or move <laughs> no. countries or just go across a, from one coast to another just to ensure that you actually survive that decision. But it was complicated because his dad, John, was still very much part of the organization. And we asked, was it true that John had given his blessing to a decision to have Michael killed?
3: Well, you know, uh, unfortunately, it was true. My dad didn't give the order. The order came down from my former boss, Carmine Persico. He took it very, very personally when I walked away from that life. And he was an old-time guy, and he was, you know, he was pretty treacherous and in his own right, he was pretty capable. But fortunately, he was in prison when he gave the order to, to kill me. My dad was uh, went along with it because he didn't have much of a choice, you know. I know this is hard to understand, guys, but I knew that my father, you know, would be in a tough position because when somebody goes bad in that life or becomes an informant, you know, my dad proposed me into the life, and he was in a tough position. He couldn't say, "Well, you know, I want to save my son." So I don't think he would ever put a you know a gun to my head, but he went along with the contract. He couldn't argue it because I did walk away, and that is an absolute. Violation of the rules. And you got to understand this everybody thought I was going to become a major witness because the government kind of put it out on the street that I was cooperating, even though I wasn't, because they were putting pressure on me. So, guys thought I was going to cooperate. Everybody was worried about it. But when it never happened, well, then the heat came off. My father didn't have anything to, to be concerned about. And people ask me all the time, well, you know, your own father went against you. I said, I understand that, but I understand the life. I know the position my dad was in. I don't love him any less. I was a little bit upset that he didn't stand up for me because I had sent him a message. I said, Dad, I'm not going to hurt anybody. I don't care what you hear on the street. I'm not going to hurt anybody. Don't believe anything that any anybody's saying. And, you know, he could have come out for me a little bit more forcefully at that point, but he didn't. But that's my dad's mentality. But, you know, we patched it up after everything calmed down you know after about 10 years my dad was out on parole and he sent for me after i got out of prison and i said to him i said look dad i I, i'm upset with what you did but i still love you and you know let's just put things back the way they were in a way so you know fortunately he was released from prison in uh in 2017 so we had three years together before he died almost three years and you know we had a good relationship so but look, that's that's that life. I mean, that life separates father and son and mm. brother and brother. It's it's a tough life.
2: John Francis actually passed away in February, aged hundred and three. Wow. He was a hundred when he was released from prison back in 2017. He was a centenarian. Centenarian. Centurion. Centurion. <laughs> I got that wrong. Um, back so in 2017, um, as Michael mentioned, so he patched things up with his dad. Things, however, have not turned out so well with another member of his family because Michael's brother, John Jr., who is 10 years younger than Michael, turned state witness and testified against their father in the process becoming the first son of a New York mobster to do that. Now, Michael tells us that John Jr. was an addict who got into some trouble and agreed to cooperate by by becoming an informant, eventually providing testimony that would send John Francis back to jail at the age of 96.
0: So his own son... At that point,
2: 96. I mean... OK, I get it, but why would you send a 96-year-old man back to jail? Anyway, Justin. John was sentenced to eight years at 97, and eventually, as we just said, he was released after three of those years, having turned 100, and Michael says he empathised with his brother and understood why he did what he did. We asked Michael how hard that had been to process. Well,
3: it was very difficult. My brother, unfortunately, was a drug addict most of his life, and, uh, you know, I saw... Look, I had a sister that died of an overdose of drugs and, and I've had a lot of experience with people, you know, drug addicted people, my brother being one of them. And, uh, you know, he was just a challenge for so many years, just just trying to keep him alive because he got on the bad side of so many people. And My brother would have got killed if it wasn't for me and my father protecting him. But when he went into the program and testified against my father, I mean, we were shocked. He did try to hurt me, um, but he couldn't because I, I you know, I pretty well knew what my brother was about, so I I wouldn't put myself in a position with him. Um, But my father kind of weakened and brought him around. And and as a result, he he suffered over it. Look, it, it was a shock. And I haven't seen my brother now in over 10 years. It's only recently since my father died that he's been back in touch with me. And he's in trouble. I mean, he can't surface in New York because he didn't only hurt my father, he hurt some other guys. So you know, he's, he, he's got a rough time ahead of him if he ever tried to surface. But, you know, it's my brother. I still love him. I, uh, I, I feel for what he did, um, but I, I can't justify it in any way. I mean, you, you just don't do those things. You don't testify against your own father. And he became an informant. You know, he wired himself up and, and, and put people in a tough position. So uh, I can't justify that. It hurts a lot, but he's still my brother. You know, and in in a way, I still love him, even though it's hard to forget what he did.
0: And if you mind me asking, Michael, if you were to come face to face with your brother today, it's been 10 years since you saw him. I mean, what would you do? What would you say?
3: Well, we've talked it out, you know, so he, you know, he kind of told me what was going on during that time. You know, I don't know if you know this, but he had contracted the HIV uh, virus and um, he was scared he was going to die. And when he made a deal with the government, they paid for his medication and they, they basically you know, gave him money to, to get himself back and help because my brother was, you know, he was a drug addict. He couldn't hold on to 10 cents. So when he went into the program, he had no choice but to stay clean. And they kind of they kind of saved his life in a way. And I believe to this day that a big part of him cooperating was because he was afraid that that virus was going to kill him. And he knew the government would would protect him and kind of, you know, hope to help shake his drug habit. So, and he kind of agrees with that and he admits that to me. So I'm not giving him right for it, but, you know, I, I understand what what's what down with him, but, you know, we've talked it out. And look, if I saw my brother, I mean, I'd give him a hug right now. And, you know, I still love him and hopefully we'll get together, you know, in the, in the, in the future. But if I was still a member of that life, I, I would not talk this way guys, because what he did was unconscionable and it would have been a, a violation and I would hate to be put in that position. That you know, I I would, I wouldn't want to see him at that point. I would wash my hands of
2: him. It's a weird set of values. Live by and adhere to, but anyone who's watched The Sopranos will know that it is complicated. And I take all my kind of my 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 mob reference points from The Sopranos. But he he actually, Michael, he's turned to religion. And you might just roll your eyes and go, "Of course, he has born again and all that." He says that it wasn't something that he was he he decided was a a kind of way to morally redeem himself. It was something that, whilst in prison, he uh, he started reading the Bible. He'd been raised as a Catholic, and um, and he just found himself during the time and the years that he spent in prison, he found himself, you know, identifying with... So that's how he kind of got back into his faith, he told us, and that's taken him to a very different pastime now or a very different vocation, whereby he speaks regularly at Christian churches and conferences in his community. He gives motivational talks at prisons in the U.S. Um, We we did have to ask him, though, were there any elements of his old life in the mafia that he misses today?
3: There's no doubt, guys. I mean... You know, I had a very idealistic view of that life when I came in. for me, it was, you know, I'm going to be part of something that my my dad is part of. You know, we're going to be reunited in blood in a different way. I was was extremely idealistic about that life. I mean, I was thrilled to be a part of it. I love the idea that this is a brotherhood among men. You know, I got your back, you got mine. I mean, I was told when I came into the life, wherever you go in the world, you'll have a brother— That'll watch your back. They said, don't ever worry about your mother, your sister, your wife, your daughter. Nobody will ever mess with them. I mean, that's very, very strong. I I think there's nothing stronger than a brotherhood among men that, you know, have a pact with each other. So, I mean, I I really enjoyed that. And I had that kind of relationship with my crew, you know, guys under me. And, you know, look, I'll be honest with you, too. You know, I'm bringing in, you know, millions of dollars a week. There was one point in time when I was bringing in between five and eight million dollars a week. I had my own jet plane, I had a helicopter, I had a ringside table wherever I went, I had people catering to me. You miss that, you know, I'm not gonna lie about that. I mean, I miss some of the things in, the, in that life. It was uh, it was enjoyable at times, even through all the pressure and the struggle and the challenges and everything else. So, you know, and I miss the guys, uh, I really do. So, and I, I'll, I'll be as honest about that. Now I wouldn't go back to it because I know that, you know, it's a dead end street, but do I miss it? I do.
2: Just miss the guys.
0: I get that. Barbecues. Yeah. I get that. The, the, the brotherhood, what, he, what he's talking about there, you can kind of understand... Listen, again, I'm not glorifying it, I'm not condoning it. No, but, it, but if we can, just, we're just passing it. You can coming. kind of understand it, right? That, that brotherhood, the, yeah. the idea, the notion that someone will always have your back. Yeah,
2: yeah. It's, it's the dual family thing. It's, it's, that's what people, I think, find so fascinating. They have, a, they have this family, and they have... I think that's why The Sopranos was such a hit show. Obviously, it was brilliantly written and there was amazing actors, but it was this dichotomy between his mob family and his real family and how those two worlds often collided.
1: Thank you for listening. And if you've enjoyed this episode, we'd love it if you could subscribe, rate and give us a review. This podcast was presented by Chris McCarty, Sonal Rupani and Robbie Greenfield and produced by Tom Paul Smith. We hope you join us next time on The Big Interview.